Advertising Week is proud to present Great Minds, People, and Culture, a podcast dedicated to exploring the art of intentional leadership during times of change. The goal of Great Minds, People, and Culture is to provide our audience with practical strategies, reliable data, and tangible advice as we look to empower leaders seeking to make a positive impact. Each 30-minute episode of People and Culture is a deep dive into the intricacies of effective leadership, featuring insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders. Great Minds People and Culture premieres September 2023 and will be available through your podcast store of choice and at advertisingweek.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is someone who's become a really, really good friend, Michael, and I mean that most sincerely. I think I was most impressed when we went to Patsy's with Matt on your team, and you paid the check. No one ever pays, Michael, and I was very, I was very impressed that you did that. Thank you. Part of it is just general anxiety around getting a bill uh, at a dinner table. Um, I, I don't like that moment where everyone is uncomfortable, so I just Go for it. I appreciated it. And Michael Sugar is the founder and CEO of Sugar 23. Sugar 23 is one of the companies that in a very real, tangible way, in real time, is helping to redefine the business. And we're going to get into all those things. His credentials are incredible. Michael is an Academy Award winner. Uh, he is a producer, a manager has his hand in so many different parts of the business. And uh, Michael, I'm thrilled that we get a chance to have you here on Great Minds. So a hearty and a heartfelt welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I love the podcast. I adore you. You've been a great friend to me and to my company. So it's an honor to be here. Well, it's, it's a virtual love fest. So Michael, we're going to jump all over the place. And there are so many places to to start with you. But what I thought we'd do is start with what is the timely and topical in our industry more broadly, your industry more broadly. You're a, a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. You're a member of the Producers Guild, and you are knee deep in the business of content and content creation, both for the business audience, but more notably for the consumer audience. Hollywood is ground to a halt. What's your take on how we got here, where we are, and how does this end? Not a tough series of questions at all. Starting you off with a light, fluffy one. Well, look, the reason we're here is because things have changed. And, you know, that's the good news and the bad news. For the last 10 years, since really Netflix came into the picture in a big way, there was an enormous opportunity for talent, for writers, directors actors, producers, actors, because there was so much more content being made. And at the beginning of this, this whole advent of streaming and the new kinds of deals that were coming in, there was just an eagerness to engage in what was a buyout scenario, right? Where everyone would just agree that we were getting paid very well. And Netflix was always generous when they made deals. 
And for a while, uh, when most artists are feast or famine and most artists are hand to mouth, the opportunity was better than what was being sacrificed in the potential of long-term earnings. I think what's happened as it's become more competitive, as there's more streamers now. So I think what's happening right now is that there's a, uh, a subset between the artists and the studios where they really agree that, you know, there's more opportunity and therefore the artist should be happy, but there's more wealth creation for the streamers and therefore the streamers should be generous and the studios should be generous. Um, and so there's a lot there that I know they agree on, which is giving me some hope, uh, but there's a lot they don't agree on. And a lot of it is is that it's, it's hard to um, litigate everything in the future today. When internet came around and it was AOL dial-up, there was no way to know uh, where the internet would go. So AI, for example, which everyone is talking about in every industry, it's undefined where that will go. I think they agree on a lot of things, and I think there's there's more to solve. So we got here because we had disruption, but with disruption comes you know, adjustment. And I think this is just the adjustment to the disruption. For years, everyone was psyched that Netflix was around and being generous and paying people well. And no one would argue that they're not paid well, but they might argue, they rightfully argue that they're not paid fairly because on the other side, Netflix and the streamers and the studios also have to adjust to the new market. So I think this is really a response to a need for correction in the industry. Well, I'm certain it will resolve. I'm hopeful that it will resolve by the time this podcast is, is out, like hopefully this afternoon, but I don't think it will be that soon. Next couple months. Okay. Next couple months. So uh, one of the interesting takes that I heard on this whole thing, and then, then we'll move on, is that for at least some of the bigger, more influential players, Amazon and Apple in particular, that the business of content is for them an ancillary, almost a side business. Whereas for some of the most important legacy players, the big studios, that this is a business that they've been in for, in some cases, a century or more, certainly through various evolutions. Warner today is very different than when Jack Warner ran the lot, certainly. But what's your take on the outsized influence of Silicon Valley in the industry and that it's just sort of an interesting dynamic where some of the most important players, for some of them, it's their only business or core business and for some an ancillary business. It is an interesting question. The reason that I believe that the brand oriented consumer facing companies that are in the streaming business, there's three principally, right? And I count Netflix because it started as a tech company. Well, it started as, you know, as, as sending DVDs across town. But I really believe, at least with Apple and Amazon, and I've had conversations with very high-level folks early on at those companies about their desire to get into to content. I think it's really a loyalty program in disguise. That while it's not a core business, it's a crucial business for Amazon because my feeling is that people have a relationship with Amazon that's a little bit Stockholm syndrome. Uh, they they need Amazon. Amazon delivers packages, but they don't have a relationship with it like they do with Nike or or brands that they love. And I think Amazon 
um, when they made the decision to get into the content world was really thinking about it as a way to make its consumer love the brand. And I think Apple is not far away from that. Obviously, Apple's in the device, you know, the, the business of hardware and they can serve up the content. But, the, you know, they're not only serving up Apple content on an iPhone. You can watch Netflix on your iPhone. So I really believe the driver, it's a rounding error on their bottom line in their annual report. But I do think that the desire is to create more consumer loyalty. Great. Yeah, such a, it's a whole uh, rich area in and of itself. That was great. Thanks. Can I, I have one more question. I, I, I said we'd end, but I've been dying to ask somebody who might actually know the answer. And Michael, it might be you. Do you think years ago, when you referred to it, when Netflix was a DVD mailing business, do you think they knew what was coming? They either knew what was coming or they crafted what was coming. Um, I don't know when they were putting DVDs in red envelopes, if the vision for the company was to ultimately be a streaming service, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I think that it's a one of the great examples in history of a pivot, if it, if it weren't uh, preordained. Yeah. Well, look at, look at Blockbuster and they went completely another way. Tremendous. Okay. All right. Enough. So Michael, I know way back when, that you went to Brandeis and then one went on to study law uh, at Georgetown. Great, great school and two great schools. But I, I know that our crack great minds research team uncovered a tenure that you spent in New Mexico. And Armand Hammer was an early hero of mine. My grandfather was a big investor, not a big investor. He was a house painter in Brooklyn, but as a hobby, he invested in stocks. And I remember he always loved any company that Armand Hammer was affiliated with. So can we go back to that early time in uh, young Michael Sugar um, out at the College of the American West in New Mexico? I'm so happy to talk about this. It's really one of the most important things I've ever done. And nobody, we never talk about it. But uh, the name of the school is the United World College. Uh, that's the name of the, the school system. There's, I don't know, maybe 12, 14 campuses globally now. And the concept of the school is to bring one or two students from 100 countries together to study in what would be the 12th grade here and the 13th grade in the UK. And it's an international baccalaureate program. So I went to the campus here in the United States. It's really one of the best kept secrets in education in the United States. I was the dummy of the group and, and I'm not saying that with any false humility, like they, they were the, truly the best in their countries and brilliant and everyone's on, on some form of a scholarship. So most of the kids in my class were just great, great minds and great humanitarians that were doing you know, a lot of cool things in high school and didn't come from a lot of money. And some of my classmates were, you know, heir apparents in their countries. And it was a really phenomenal experience. And the way that they taught us was so unique, which was in a history class, instead of saying, here's what happened, and this is what caused World War I uh, or World War II or whatever, they would say, let's talk about World War I. Jürgen, what did you learn in Germany? 
Michael, what did you learn in the United States? So, so they, we were able to hear the different perspectives and the way history was taught in different countries and different cultures so that we could find the truth between them. Um, and, and when I was there, Prince Charles was the president of the, of the organization. And then I was there in a very formative time in our world. It was the Berlin Wall came down, Mandela was freed, um, and, uh, the fall of apartheid. And so it was, a and the Gulf War, all within, you know, two years that I was there. So it was really interesting to see the world through the lens of being really one of the only few Americans and, uh, and get, getting the perspective of, you know, the Israeli student and the Palestinian student and the South African student. And, and they really, um, they, they brought us into this sort of microcosm of the world. It was awesome. I mean, I could talk about that. It's a whole two hours, but it was some of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And it sounds like that. And then, you know, your academic foundation really gave you sort of a unique really almost a jambalaya of a foundation, you know, from a creative vantage point and a business vantage point. Yeah. I mean, I think, thank you. I think what was interesting about, and it's a great segue to sort of why I'm doing what I'm doing this school, 90% of the kids that went there wanted to change the world, right. In some form. And many of my former or former students, classmates uh, are in positions of great power in politics they're at the World Bank, they're at the UN, some of them are leading their countries right now. Um, I always wanted to make movies. And I was the, the kid in that group that was dreaming about changing the world through entertainment. And uh, so for me, the perspective I gained was, was not only that I could, but why it was important. And, and so it was, when I say this was the probably the singular most formative experience in my life, I'm, I'm not overstating it. I mean, it was really an incredible education. And anyone who's listening who has an opportunity to send their kid there or their friend, the United World College is an unbelievable opportunity. Fantastic. I'm glad we got to talk about it as well. You said you always knew, or certainly when you were in New Mexico, that you knew what you wanted to do. That's not true of everybody who is in the equivalent of 12th or 13th grade. Talk about where that passion for, you know, that power of storytelling. Talk about where that comes from. Your parents, was it something that was just always with you? Well, I, it was definitely my parents at first. Both my folks were in the entertainment industry in a different part of the industry that I'm in, um, mostly in international sale of film. But I was lucky as a kid because my parents believed that travel at least early on, was as important as school. So they would take us out of school and I saw the world very young. And I also got to see, you know, the Cannes Film Festival and travel to some of the coolest parts of, of the world. And so it was ingrained early in me that it was something I wanted to do. I think as early as maybe sixth grade, I write a book, no, seventh grade, an English class called A Separate Piece by John Knowles. And I read the book and I said to my dad, I love this book. You should make this as a movie. And he said, well, I'm not making it as a movie. You should make it as a movie. So he found out for me that Paramount owned the rights. And I wrote a letter to Paramount on, you know, by hand in college ruled paper. And they didn't respond. And a year later, he said, whatever happened with your book? And I said, I never heard back. And he said, well, you, you got to keep trying. So I wrote another letter when I was 14. And then 
And then it became like a yearly tradition. I would write to Paramount, you know, I'm 15, I'm going to the prom, I'm graduating from high school. And and I, and every year I got a little bit more savvy about how to write the letter and to whom I should write it, but still no response. And finally, when I was in my final year of law school, uh, I got a response from Business Affairs and they said, you need a producer who has a deal with Paramount. So then I wrote a letter to every producer who had a deal at Paramount and one of them wrote me back. And it was a, a very legendary producer called Howard Koch, who, who was in the twilight of his life. And he wasn't really working in Hollywood anymore, but he had he was such a legend there that they let him keep his office and, and he went there every day. And so he took me in and mentored us. And uh, we finally got the opportunity to make that. And that was our first movie. So I guess the first movie I made, I started working on it when I was 12, which was uh, which was fun. What a great story. Wasn't he an icon in comedy in particular? With Do I associate him with it? It's a mad, 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 mad world. You know what? He did that. He did uh, The Odd Couple, Casablanca. I mean, Ghost. He just did a lot of, and then he was the president of the studio for many years. So a really amazing guy. And serendipity, or I guess that's the wrong word, coincidence, that he passed away on the first day of shooting that film. And he told me, I'm going to get your picture made if it's the last thing I do. And, and I guess it was. So somebody really took a chance on me, which was great. Absolutely fantastic. So briefly, just to touch on it, you go to Georgetown, get yourself a law degree. Often people in business, even in creative industry, say that that law degree was helpful to them. Um, that it's uh, a nice Jewish mother, as we both had, would say it's a good foundation. It's always something you can fall back on, right? That's something that you'd hear a Jewish mother or or grandmother say. Is that true, Michael? Has that, has the law degree helped you at all or been irrelevant to you? No, it's definitely helped. I, I never viewed it as something to fall back on, even though I knew going into law school, I would never, I never intended to practice law. Um, I wanted the, I, I did want the education. I did want to learn um, what I at least thought I would learn uh, in terms of how to make deals and contracts and, and all that. So I don't think it's so much that I have fallen back on it or, or I have it in the, in the background. If everything else goes to shit, I can be a lawyer. It's more about how I've leveraged the way it teaches people to think and to anticipate different outcomes. Really, that's the thing that I take away the most from my law school experience. And I didn't have a lot of pressure because I didn't need the best job in a law firm. So I really got to enjoy law school and, and, and learn it. So where I use it now most is just sort of how when I have a problem to solve, I, I can see, you know, three or four different outcomes, whereas most people, even when I'm not thinking analytically, it's just like, you know, cause and effect. And so to me, it was a great education. And I think it gives credibility, you know, coming into the entertainment industry, I was three years behind my friends who just started at a talent agency or at a studio, but I don't regret it at all. Great. Well, uh, listen, it sounds like it was a great investment of those three years. I want to get to Sugar 23 and all the stuff you've got cooking now, which is just so exciting, but we'd be remiss not to touch on a 13 some odd year stint at Anonymous Content, where you were a partner, incredible run. As you reflect on that part of your career, Michael, what do you remember most fondly? Well, I think Anonymous 
was a really disruptive company. And, you know, when I went there, I went there as a, a manager primarily. I hadn't started producing television and film yet. And they had two or three managers at the time. And we built that into one of the top shops in Hollywood over, you know, 10 years. What I loved about Anonymous really was just that it, it wasn't afraid to see the connectivity in media where it was initially, you know, it was driven largely by commercials and it was started as a commercial production company, but we were able to bring the filmmakers that were doing commercials into the management business. And subsequently we were able to produce films and television with them. And then we were able to cross film and television directors into commercials. And so it was really the first time that I saw Flywheel work and it was great. And we had a, we had a fun run there. Unfortunately, my, my boss passed away a few years ago. I left just before that to start Sugar 23, but I have great friends there and, and you know, they're, they continue to do very well. Anything creatively that stands out, such a body of work at Anonymous during your tenure there? A lot of films that we made while I was there, Babel, you know, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, Spotlight, which uh, I produced a number of other films. I mean, initially it was known for film. I think what I'm most proud of creatively though is the TV business that we got into where Steve Golan saw uh, early and, and I saw with him the opportunity to change the way television was working, which was, you know, very slow and stale and you pitch a pilot, then you write a pilot, then you test, then you green light the pilot, you test it and so much waste and, and time gone. And we said, why don't we just make TV like a movie? And when we started thinking about that, we, we started with True Detective. And it was really the first ever show that was sold straight to series other than House of Cards, which was, you know, the beta for Netflix. And now premium television is almost fully packaged and written before it's sold. So I think we really led a disruption in, in premium television. And I'm very proud of that. And subsequently made a number of shows. We produced The Nick and Mr. Robot and maybe a dozen, 15 shows in the next year and a half. So obviously very proud of that and you know on the commercial side in the 32nd world you know starting with the bmw films and moving on to some of the most iconic you know super bowl spots and the png mother we're very proud of that and the filmmakers that were there david fincher and inaritu and you know it was it was awesome to be in in their orbits fantastic great great stuff michael so you craft another idea for another disruption Going back, and I guess the launch of Sugar 23 was about 2018. Talk about the early ideas before Sugar 23 was Sugar 23. And, and how much, Michael, of that vision that you had going back now five or six years is still where you are? How much has changed? When I started Sugar 23, it was largely meant to replicate most of what I was doing at Anonymous in a smaller version initially. And that was principally to make great movies and television shows and manage the most iconic artists that, you know, on the planet. 
And we started off strong and we made a deal with Netflix and we were making shows and movies and, and we've been doing that all along. And then we started to add management business a couple of years ago and, and it's all been going fine. But Hollywood is tough right now. It's worse with the strikes, but even before the strikes, it was just getting harder and harder. The pandemic uh, basically shut us all down for a couple of years and uh, you can make a nice living as a producer if you make things, but uh, I'm trying to build a, an enterprise that scales. And so I was looking for something a little bit more disruptive. And and I, I dabbled in a couple of different things until I landed on sort of what I think was my, my epiphany um, and what I'm really focused on now. So the early ideas of working with brands did that come along the journey was that part of the original vision it, it wasn't part of the original vision um i didn't believe initially that brands got it and i didn't believe that talent got uh, was excited to work with brands having seen the pillow talk making commercials for years it was always a almost like you know a, a deal with the devil to go do a commercial you did it for the money I never, I never spoke to a movie star or director that was desperate to do a commercial. They would talk themselves into doing a commercial. And so I was just not that excited about living in that space. And as anyone who makes commercials knows, the margins were getting jammed. It was harder and harder to get work. So I didn't really want to be in the commercial business. But I started to see this opportunity in a year and a half ago when, when Time Studios, who we work with, project with PG. And when we went and sold it, I was like, holy shit, there's something here. Like maybe, maybe the brands can cross into Hollywood in a different way. And maybe, you know, while there's been people singing uh, about brands in entertainment for many, many years, I certainly didn't invent it. There are great people that have, you know, been banging the drum on this for many, many years. But I think what might be different is that it's never really been led by a maker of premium content. It's always been led by people that can access the makers. And so I think when what we did was we turned the company from a, an entertainment media business that had a couple people focused on brand to a brand forward full ecosystem. And now we are powering entertainment for a number of fortune brands and other brands that, you know, spend a lot of money. And because I believe, I believe more than ever that, you know, going back to the early part of our conversation, when you asked why is Apple and Amazon in entertainment, because they know that entertainment is a connector between the brand and the consumer. And, and for all, you know, for decades, brands have been paying to be adjacent to that. But what we're focused on now is allowing brands to not be adjacent to it, but to be front and center and to actually have ownership of that content. One of the things, Michael, that you always hear when something new comes along is that it will mark the decline or demise of something else. So way back when in the earliest days of television, you know, that was going to be the end of radio. And that, of course, ended up not being the case at all. And you could argue today, 
between, you know, so-called terrestrial radio and digital radio that the medium has never been healthier. One of the things that people in this space talk about is the newness of what's happening and the approach. But if you go back in history, how is this different today from Texaco Star Theater and the Gillette Cavalcade of Stars and the earliest soap operas, which were paid for and produced by companies like Procter & Gamble? Well, it's evolutionary to that, right? So commercials is a cousin of that. And what we're doing is Darwinian evolution to that. But I do think it's more, it's much closer to that than to a 30 second spot. I think that concept of a brand presenting, Geritol presenting a game show or P&G presenting a soap opera, they weren't making the soap opera. They were authoring the relationship between that content and the consumer, which is a huge part of my thesis. But I think what we're adding to that in, in this evolution is the opportunity for the brand to actually impact that creative and to own it or own a piece of it so that it's a profit center rather than just a pure expense, which it was. There are certain instances where brands have profited on original entertainment and in some cases in a very robust way. But at scale, it hasn't happened yet. And I think that's the newness. Great answer. So talk about the another revolution, which is the mindset of brands, brand marketers, CMOs. Give us your sort of finger on the pulse of the education, if you will, of today's marketing leaders of the great brands in embracing the area where Sugar 23 is doing some incredible work. The good news for us is that when we are sitting with the decider, with the stakeholder who can engage us and engage in this strategy, they get it almost unanimously. And that's been awesome. What's challenging is when you go into these organizations with thousands of people under the CMO who are there to keep us away from the CMO, and all the creative people that are trying to access the brand money. It's been slow in some cases because what we are selling may seem to be existentially challenging to the people who are there to screen us. And so the more I can speak directly to a CMO and frankly to CEOs and chief revenue officers and chief financial officers who really love this model because now they're seeing marketing spend as a potential business vertical. When we get in those rooms, it's going great. But as you know, better than most, brands are set up to move slow and act fast. And so I, I like the acting fast part, but the moving slow part is, uh, is, is very frustrating at, at times. And so I think that's the biggest hurdle for us at, to scale this is getting more people aware, the right people aware of what we're doing. It's starting to get a lot of momentum. There's word of mouth. CMOs are telling other CMOs, there are people like you who are spreading the word and helping us so much. We've been doing this strategy for less than a year and we have you know, nine global brands on our roster already and maybe 50 to 100 other brands who are really excited about making entertainment. So I think the friction point, and you asked earlier, like what does this disrupt, You know, is what does this replace? I don't think this replaces marketing. I don't think this replaces 30 seconds. I don't think this replaces creative agency. I don't think this replaces 
Hollywood producers. I think it, re it, it reallocates media. At the end of the day, the scale of this will depend on more and more brands realizing that if they make a 30 second spot and they spend a few million bucks and then they have to spend many more millions to buy inventory to, to air that spot, getting them to think about instead of making a 30 second spot or in addition to making a 30 second spot, they make a 30 minute show. And the money that they would have spent promoting a commercial will be spent making the show and then Netflix or Amazon or NBC or some other outlet will pay to put it on the air. And so we are seeing that, uh, Matt, which is super cool. A number of the brands we are working with are taking media dollars and reallocating them to what we're doing. And we are working with the holding companies on this. We are not trying to even disrupt the holding companies because they understand, you know, I think the holding companies are, are really uh aware that this is where it's going but they don't know exactly how to do it and the relationship with their clients is challenging because the clients don't want their holding company involved in their in in their um entertainment strategy so we're working on that but there's a lot of constituents to this and we're we're having fun navigating it but you know from our point of view we want to empower everyone to win and this, by the way, it's not just us. In Hollywood, we are taking the brands we work with at scale to Hollywood. We're not trying to take all that money that they want to spend for ourselves. We have a number of other premium producers, some of the best on the planet, coming to us to get brand money for their shows. And it's working. And so some of our clients already, you know, we've sold shows to brands and we're not producing it at all. We're just helping them access that money. So we'll see uh, how, where it goes. I believe it's the future. I, I think it's going to scale very quickly. It already has started to do that. And, um, but we just need more and more CMOs to just say, I'll give this team 30 minutes. Cause when we get 30 minutes, almost invariably we're getting business with them. As you go through it, Michael, what strikes me is, you know, that notion of being a maker of content, not just hiring makers, but that you do that you're in the engine room. And it reminds me in a way what you're doing here is analogous in some ways to the early days of Mark McCormick and IMG, where he saw an opportunity to build relationships in that case between personalities and brands at scale in a way that had not been done before. You know, going back to his earliest clients, at one point he represented ironically Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas at the same time for a brief period. But I, I, I love what you're doing. I love how uh, you're embracing that navigation of the ecosystem where I imagine some people are very happy to see you in the room and some other people may not be as happy to see you in the room? I think that they will be happy to see me in the room. I think most people are questioning why I'm doing this because it's hard, right? I, I can I can get a movie script in or a TV script in or an idea for an unscripted show. And if it's awesome, like any producer in Hollywood, I could call Ted Sarandos and say, hey, Ted, here's an idea. What do you say? But what I'm doing that's different from other producers and my whole company behind me is doing the same is when we have something that's good enough to sell, we stop and we think about where we can plug a brand in at that point. 
And, and I think that, you know, that that's making people raise their eyebrows. Why would I do that? But the reason I'm doing it is because I want to prove the model, right? I want to prove that I, that there's a better way. Um, and I think, you know, there are people that, that may feel competitive to us, uh, like take creative agencies, for example, right? Creative agencies want to author and own the relationship exclusively for brands. And what, and we were very careful. What's happened recently is that creative agencies are actually calling us regularly and saying, oh, we have a brand client. We've got a pitch. Uh, why, what would you do in entertainment? And they're just bringing us along as their strategic partner for entertainment. And as recently as this week, a creative agency uh, that, that called us just got a huge award and we were in that room. And so I feel like we're really we're really trying to be careful about not making enemies here, um, because I don't think we're replacing anything. I think we're augmenting something that everyone has been trying to do. I mean, you've got you know brilliant you know prophets in our industry like Jay Goodman and Michael Casson and others and, who have been screaming for years about this and have been really at the forefront of this. I think where we're different and 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 not competitive to it is that we can actually power the creative that they're selling to the brands as a strategy. And so we're trying our best. But yeah, I guess you can't make a, an omelet without breaking an egg. Michael, just to wrap, uh, I'd love to talk about where you are right now. You've uh, moved in with your family, LA, where I know you had a home for many, many years and I still have a big presence, but made a decision to go to Nashville, another great, great city, a great creative hub. Talk about doing what you do out of Nashville. And I, I think it's one of the real hot places in this country. It's got a real positive energy. You feel like its best days are ahead of it. Um, I love Memphis. I didn't have the same feeling in Memphis, um, but talk about that evolution and working out of the great state of Tennessee. Yeah, I, we moved to Nashville about a year ago. It was really driven by family. Um, we were starting to feel a little unsafe in LA and I, I was feeling a little uninspired. And and so we, we, for a myriad reasons, decided to come to Nashville. It's turned out to be a great experience. You know, the micros, I love New York. I'm there every couple of weeks. I love uh, LA, you know, I'm there all the time as well. And that's where our team is based. But there's just something about the micro stressors that are gone. When I wake up in LA and I have to drive to work, I've got to navigate helicopters and police cars and noise and all of it. And when I get up here, it's very easy. There's no traffic. If I want to go to Whole Foods, I don't have to think about what time of day I want to do it to get a parking space. So that's been very zen for, for us. But geographically, it's also been fantastic since, you know, we're so focused on the brands, none of which are really in LA. Um, I can buy, I can go to Ohio or, or Minnesota or Georgia or wherever I need to go in, you know, a day trip instead of making three days out of it. So it's been geographically great. And, and the creative community in Nashville is, is growing very quickly, not just from Hollywood, but from, from brand and marketing side. There's executives from holding companies that are here. There's executives from, you know, create, there's many creative agencies that are based here, some really, really great ones. 
So I love it. And, and I think you're right. It's just the first inning in Nashville right now. Yeah. Great, great city. Well, Michael, thanks so much for doing this. We're going to figure out uh, our next endeavors together. I love all our conversations. Uh, so impressed with the vision and the execution of the vision at Sugar 23. And uh, this was an awful lot of fun. I hope Not I didn't at all. It was really fun badly. for me. And you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here.